Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us today is Joshua Cooper Ramo. He has written most recently the excellent book, The Seventh Sense, Power, Fortune, and Survival in the Age of Networks. Uh, he's written before this one, The Age of the Unthinkable, which is, an un, which is an international bestseller. He's the co-chief executive officer and vice chairman of Kissinger Associates, and he's a member of the board of directors of FedEx and Starbucks. We're lucky enough to have him with us today to discuss The Seventh Sense. Joshua, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you. Joshua, the, the book is very much about a new age and the changes that are happening in the world today that we are all, especially those of us in leadership roles, uh, uh, need to understand. And it starts with this concept of connectivity. Can you talk about it? What is connectivity? Sure. And uh, I mean, I think this is exactly right, which is no matter what you're doing today, whether you're planning your career, your kid's education, or uh, trying to run a Fortune 20 company, there are things that are coming at you all the time uh, that are totally unexpected and that represent a, a really radical change to the way you may need to think about the world. I was at a event about a week and a half ago talking with a lot of the kinds of people you work with a lot who run big companies. In this case, it was a group of private, e- private equity people. And, you know, private equity guys make their investment on this theory that they'll, they'll run the business for, let's say, three to seven years and, and kind of think that it'll be a relatively constant environment. And this room was filled with people who in the three or five or seven years that they had planned to hold these investments have seen their businesses wiped out by Amazon or assaulted by new technology companies. And it's just an example that nothing is immune and things are moving very quickly. And, and the root of that, I think, is this emergence of connected systems that change the logic of where power sits, how economics works. And I think there, there are people who are capable of looking at the world and seeing immediately what this does to the world. So right, the guys who started Uber looked at a car. You and I probably just looked at a car and thought it was a car. They had the ability to understand that a connected car is fundamentally different than one that is not connected. And they you know, built a giant business on that premise. Uh, the guys who were in charge in, in Russia of trying to hack the U.S. elections looked at the American election system and said connected voters, connected media sources were different than what existed in the past. And there was a chance to do something uh, you know, that they felt would be a, a way to exploit that system. So connected systems have different laws of power. And I think they can be kind of boiled down to the idea that connection changes the nature of any object. It changes the nature of a dollar. It changes the nature of a terrorist. It changes the nature of a doctor, of a telephone. And so first, the thing you've got to land in your head is that everything is going to change as it gets more and more connected. But it's relatively trivial, I think, to say it's going to change because it's connected. What's more interesting to say is how is it going to change? What is going to happen? Where's the power going to be? How is this an opportunity? How is this a threat? And that's really what I try to do in the book, The Seventh Sense, is to sort of say, okay, let's acknowledge that connection is changing the nature of everything around us, that so much of the surprise we see in the world today, so much of the things we don't know the answer to are the results in the ways, of the way in which economies or, uh, or political systems are shifting under this pressure of connectivity. But how is that happening? And so I, I identified something I call the seventh sense, which is based on this idea that Friedrich Nietzsche had during the Industrial Revolution where he said there was so much disruption going on that you would need a new sense, your existing ones were not enough. So he, he came up with a sixth sense, which was kind of a feeling for history that he thought would be helpful. 
And what I think is I, I've kind of been around the world is there are people who have what I think is a seventh sense, which is a feeling for connectivity. They can look at something and understand how power is going to be changed, how its nature is going to be changed as a result of connectivity. That's a skill that can be learned. It's 100% what I've tried to do in the book, but it is a very different way of looking at the world than, uh, than, than the traditional way of looking at you know, it, it reminds me when I was reading, I, I think it might have been Liar's Poker. It was, you know, one of the Michael Lewis books. And he was describing a trader. And when Chernobyl happened, the guy sat, it, you just heard that Chernobyl happened. And, and, and everybody's going crazy. And he just sat there for about 30 seconds. And then he turned around and started buying potato futures. Mm. And he was linking, you know, one to the next, to the next, to the next. Yep. And he was saying, here's how to make money on this thing. Is that the same thing? Is it, it's a, it's a more, that's more of sort of a linear sense of connection, but is it the same skill that says I could see how these seven different things connect to result in something that I can then leverage or, you know, that's right. the lead, et cetera. That's right. And really understanding the dynamic of how power works in these systems. So it's one thing to say that, okay, the, the stock market is connected to Facebook, right? If things happen there, you know, it has implications in the stock market. But there are, there are really larger shifts in power going on that are profound. And it's sort of understanding the logic, really kind of get at some of those rules. And, and I, I should say, by the way, Peter, you know, we're super early in this period. The, the, the networks we're a part of today, and by networks, I don't just mean the internet. The internet's a great sort of Petri dish for these ideas. But I, I mean any connected system, right? People who listen to this podcast is a network. People who read your books is a network. People who live in Beijing is a network we're starting to understand some of the basic rules of how these systems organize themselves. And it's more than just saying things are connected. It's that they're connected in particular ways. So I'll give you an example. One of the, the things we think we understand about a lot of these network systems is they do tend to create these kind of winner take all platforms where there's this logic. It's known as an increasing return to scale where the bigger they get, the more dominant they become and the more powerful they become. The more people who use Facebook, the more people need to use Facebook, right? If it's not like you're going to go to MySpace or Friendster or start it's something the else. the network effect. Exactly. And the first instance of this was famously Microsoft, which is, right, if you were, if you were in the position of uh, using Microsoft Windows and I sent you some document, you needed to have Windows or Word or Excel in order to be able to open it. Well, and even and, before then, it was fax yeah. machines, right? Yeah, it was like, right. It was like that, right, created it. Unless you also have one. A kind of platform. So we know these network effects exist. What's interesting is that now they're so incredibly powerful. And so when technology first came on the scene, I think there was a sense that, uh, meaning connected technology, whether it's your smartphone or internet connections, that it was this leading to this massive distribution of power. You and I have more technology and more computing power in our phone today than um, in, you know, was probably available on the entire planet 100 years ago. And so it does lead to this massive distribution of power, but at the same time, it creates this incredible concentration of power. And so the distribution of power today really is that that joint experience of power becoming incredibly concentrated and incredibly spread around and diversified at the same time. And it's that tension. You want to, might almost picture an atom, right? Where you've got these electrons on the outside and this incredible core of neutrons and protons. And the more, the stronger that core gets, the more things you have on the outside, the more things you have on the outside, the stronger the core needs to be to hold those electrons in, right? So the more people who use Google Maps, the more powerful that central map becomes and as it becomes more powerful more people are attracted to using it and that distribution of power between incredible concentration and incredible distribution is is a lot of what is rewriting laws of economics and politics you know a good example of this i often give is the case of my father who's a doctor who's a cardiologist it used to be 
if you had something wrong with your heart, my dad was your last word. You'd go see him, he'd tell you what you thought. Today, he finishes talking to a patient basically before he's left the room. That patient is probably Googling whatever it is that he has told them to see if it's correct. Because there's, there's, there's millions of sources of information about heart disease. But at the same time, in five years or 10 years, there will be some computer that is looking at masses of data and will be able to out-diagnose my father because it has this incredible concentrated worldview. So you have mass distribution, mass concentration, and that role of sitting in the middle is kind of getting pulled apart. And that, that's why we see so many existing institutions under pressure. It's because they were built for a different logic of power. It seems like that, you know, on the one hand, the networks can really look like chaos, right? Because there's a million people doing a million different things and connecting with each other in, in seemingly a million different, different um, modalities. But on the other hand, the concentration that you're talking about means that these networks can be extremely organized. Like you can have, you know, eBay or Amazon that democratize power by create by making everybody a seller or the same thing with Airbnb or the same thing with Uber. But on the other hand, there's an Uber and an Airbnb and an Amazon and an eBay. And, right. the, and the power is concentrated in the organizational system that's able to be the hub of that network. That's right. And it's very hard to compete. So, you know, a lot of the people you coach and deal with are, are significant business leaders they're used to operating in that much more industrial world where, look, if Ford has a good year, GM probably also has a pretty good year. Right. Winner take all businesses, you know, uh, Google had a great year last year. What kind of year did Bing have? What kind of year did, did Yahoo have? Really put a tremendous premium on getting these decisions right early. And you've got to remember, Peter, we're, like I said, we're in a very early period of this, that there are so many things out there that have yet to be connected, that this kind of logic of, of power is still emerging. And it's got its own puzzles that come with it. I mean, I think we're now seeing you know, the power of Google and Facebook, these arguably may be the most powerful institutions in human history in terms of their ability to affect people's lives, either knowingly or because they become, you know, subverted. And that kind of black box that surrounds how they operate, which is in some cases necessary for how they operate, really poses a problem to the traditional ways we think about distribution of power. Now, you know, to make one other point, by the way, as you try to think about navigating this world as a leader, these systems may look chaotic, but there are certain regularities that emerge from them. So, so for instance, once you had a billion web pages, something like Google was going to emerge, right? Once you had 3 billion people online, something like Facebook was going to emerge. And it's not to take anything away from the executives who, who, who did that, but we know in, in complex systems that there's a property known as emergence, which is that things, certain regularities, certain patterns, certain structures actually do emerge out of that. And so, if the world was just chaos, nothing around us would exist. Complexity theory teaches us that there are patterns of emergence. And that's what we're seeing happen in this connected world. As more things are connected, as there's more and more opportunity for links to be formed, you're going to see more and more of these newly emerging platforms. You know, a couple of thoughts that I have, and I want to, I want to continue on the stream of what leaders can do in this environment. And it's that, you know, on the one hand, these, the, the networks are completely democratized you know, in terms of access, it creates a really, really long tail, right? So, you know, you can sell three things. Uh, you know, you, you, my, my daughter, for example, makes candles with scents. The scent of the candle relates to characters in these sort of science fiction books that she reads. Great. Right? It's an incredibly niche market yeah. of people who want to, you know, like buy fantasy fiction scented candles. Yes. Uh, related to characters. And yet she can sell them because there's, you know, a perfect marketplace almost out there right. and, and that they can find each other. 
And so on the one hand, you have that, which democratizes power to some degree because it gives her a marketplace. And on the other hand, what we talked about, right, which is that the power is, is centralized. And, um, and, and also the taste shifts because there's a monopoly in a sense in terms of the concentration of that power. But, you know, I was talking about Facebook to, you know, a, a 10-year-old who rolled her eyes at me and then said Instagram. Right. And, and so, it, you know, not that Facebook is going away and Facebook owns Instagram. So there's, but there's a, a sense of, you know, how tastes can change. And then when there's, you know, talk about Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, when there's sort of this tipping point, and then everybody can move from one network to another. And, and, and that can change the balance of power. But I think it's a little hard to do. You know, it, it's, it's unlikely that Yahoo will overtake Google at this point. And so I guess my question is, you know, what are the elements of leadership that are fundamentally changing? And what advice do you have for leaders who are running companies that, you know, the, they may not be the CEO of Airbnb and Uber, and, and they may be running more traditional businesses. How do they step into this new world and find their ground? Well, I mean, I think the, the first thing to accept is really the scale of what is underway here, that that you know, we all crave, you know, your daughter craves, even younger generations, connectivity and being connected is as important in many ways to some people as being free once was, right? That the great story of the last several hundred years was this demand for liberty and people wanting to define their lives, not based on where they were born or the color of their skin or who their parents were, but by what they, they dreamed they wanted. And the United States was really the, the country that for the longest time made that the most possible. It was incredibly modern machine for for turning people's lives into what their their hopes were people as much as they are craving uh liberty now also crave crave connectivity and that's a real shift i mean if you'd said to me a decade ago uh look i'm gonna give you this device you're gonna take it with you everywhere it's gonna follow all your movements and in exchange for that it's gonna save you five minutes in traffic i would have said i, I don't want that orwellian box anywhere near me but when i walk around with my android phone and use google maps that's exactly what's going on and so that that I've given up my freedom, I've given up my privacy to some degree uh, in exchange for convenience. And so that's the sort of trade-off that's going on. And it's unstoppable because we crave the benefits of it, right? You're happy Google now has a feature where they can watch your search history and they notice certain patterns that might suggest, for instance, you have pancreatic cancer, which is this horrible cancer that usually is discovered far too late to treat. And they will alert you based on your search history earlier than your doctors may spot any system that you may, symptoms that you may need to go see somebody. So, you know, you will be willing to give up the protection and the privacy of your search history because the benefits of knowing this, in this case, literally would be life-saving. And that's unlikely to stop. So the first thing leaders need to understand is that this really represents a honestly deep shift in power. I make the case in my book that it's as deep as the shift that came with the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment, which really began this process of people demanding a world where they could be free. I think people will now demand a world where they can be connected to the best possible systems. And, and you know, it's very interesting. You see that there's a poll that came out uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago looking at millennial views of democracy. And millennial support for democracy and democratic institutions is much lower than people would have expected. They don't take it as a given that freedom is the most important thing. And, uh, you know, part of that may be that they, they understand how important connectivity is to their sense of identity. So the first thing is a leader is just understand the scale of this. This is not something that's going away. It, it is something that sector by sector is just devouring traditional businesses, whether that's traditional retail or traditional media or traditional medicine. 
And if you are in any business or structure that has the word traditional in front of it, the odds are, and that's true for traditional politics, your traditional economics, you are likely to get devoured by these forces that are moving very quickly and which we barely understand. The second thing is to try to really understand to some degree what's going on and why, they, why these things happen. And that, you know, one of the things I do in the book is sort of walk through what are the various rules of power that we think we know. And it's worth keeping in mind, the systems we have today are, are really just simple versions. The ones we're going to have in the future are going to be far more complicated because they will be nearly instant in their speed. Um, the, the latency that you have today when you're trying to get data or other things, that's all going to go away. You'll have near light speed connectivity. And then as a result of that, you'll have more and more AI on these systems because they will demand uh, the use of machines to manage things, both because it's faster and safer and more secure, but also because the benefits of having machines watching over our lives, um, you know, in many cases will be profound. And so that dynamic as a leader means that you have to understand that your business is probably not engineered for the world you're going into. And you need to start to figure out how do you re-engineer from the ground up, but there's not a lot of success cases for that. What, what, would it, what is a success case for that? What would it look like to re-engineer a business so that it takes advantage of the network? You know, the, the, the best examples are some of these long-standing tech firms in, in the Valley that have been able to, you know, if you, it's extremely difficult. I mean, if you look at Intel now trying to reboot themselves uh, to some degree as they are you know, facing new competition, you can see what it looks like in practice. And so a lot of these tech firms that have had to constantly reinvent themselves, uh, you know, Oracle has just completely remade their business because that is such a lethal world. If you miss a single product cycle, you can basically be out of business no matter how big you are, um, is not a bad example of this. But it's really difficult. And it's very difficult also to be successful in many areas. You know, if you look at Microsoft, they've been hugely successful in certain areas, but you would have thought this company is going to totally dominate search and they have not been able to do that. Now, they may have a, a tremendous opportunity here in AI. But just to realize how difficult it is even for entrenched players to figure out how to reinvent their business uh, is a lesson to this. So, you know, oh, go ahead. Let, yeah. well, let me ask you a question because it's, I don't even exactly know how to ask this question, but, it's, it's, uh, but I realize it's been on my mind, which is you know, we, we, we have always lived in a world, certainly as leaders, where we feel like everything has a controllable aspect, right? So... So you look at the, you know, the tipping point that I mentioned before, it's this yeah. idea that, you know, if we can only harness these five elements or these three things, or we could kind of, you know, then we can get this mass runaway bestseller. And, this ma and, and I wonder, you know, it's very easy in retrospect to look back and say, these are the things that those people did that made it successful. And what you're saying, which I really appreciate is, it's very, very hard to transform a business and, and to take advantage of this network or the network effect or the, the, you know, to like leverage the seven cents. And I wonder in your experience, how much of this is really random to a certain extent that, and, and it's not random because in retrospect, you can see what people did, but, but, you know, looking ahead, it's very, you know, it's a monkey flipping a coin. Like it's yeah. some, some organizations will take off. Uber will take off and Lyft won't, or Uber will die out and Via will be big. But, but it's, you know, very, you know, Facebook versus Instagram, but it's impossible to predict because the network has, you know, a, a very organized but uncontrollable mind of its own. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. So there's two things to keep in mind. One is there's no second place, which is a new phenomenon to some degree. And that makes it very difficult to compete. And who wins first place is a, is a fusion of luck 
there's not a single one of these people who's running one of these big companies who won't tell you that luck wasn't a factor in their success and then execution. But there are certain things we know about the designs of these networks that do suggest areas that are quite fertile for work um, and, and probably where you can find uh, opportunities, but they're very different from the traditional ways in, in which we build companies and organizations. Um, and, and I think you'll see, you know, it's very interesting. It, it, my work mostly in New York uh, and in Beijing is with much more traditional large-scale industrial firms. Um, my wife runs a technology uh, business. Her business has a high technology component. And she lives in a world in New York where everything is sort of on demand. Office space is on demand. You know, millennials kind of come in and out of jobs. Uh, you know, they, you, you use certain spaces for events because they're available from, you know, 4 o'clock in the afternoon till 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, it's the kind of thing no fortune 50 executive would consider a respectable way to get through the day but there's a underlying dynamism to that economy that's extraordinary and so what you may see over time just as a transition in the, in the fundamental modes of production it's not to say big corporations are going away because we point out these large highly concentrated corporations will be a part of our lives but there may also be this incredible energy of just diversified economics in which there's uh, an amazing opportunity to think about um, things like labor in terms of labor networks and not labor markets and different ways to capture value. So I think it's a real problem if you're sitting inside a traditional corporate structure, but it's not like the world is going to go to become completely chaotic. There will be new opportunities. They're just going to emerge in very different places. And so, you know, as we're winding down in, in the conversation, um, and there's so many more questions I want to ask you. So maybe we'll have to, you know, offline or maybe even, you know, at some other point online, continue this conversation because it's, um, it's fascinating and it's unfurling, right? I mean, we're just like, to yes. your point, we're, we're trying to kind of figure it out and understand it. And, and I think it's actually brave to, to come out with a book and, and you give, you give, you have thoughts in this about kind of how to move forward. But, but I think it's also brave to say there's this new thing coming and we're not entirely sure how to leverage it. And we don't exactly know how to transform our businesses in such a way to take advantage of it. But we need to start thinking about it collectively because... Because the reason I call it a sense is because it's about, and I spent a lot of time in this book, it's about training an instinct. History teaches us a lot about what do you do when something you've never seen before shows up? Because that has happened. And that sense of preparing yourself to deal with that, that, that's absolutely something you can do, even if you don't know exactly what the reaction's gonna be because you don't know the nature of what's about to land. So, what, so give us some departing advice. What would you suggest, you know, aside from read the book, which I heartily suggest everybody do, what, what um, suggestions do you have to help us become more attuned to this in a way that could you know, help us show up as stronger leaders in this changing environment? You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier, Peter, that's very interesting, I'd forgotten this case of, right, the guy who was sort of quiet around Chernobyl and then started trading. There's a real virtue to cultivating a kind of inner stillness right now. Uh, and, and maybe this, you know, comes from my many years of, of living in China, where you're always thinking about what's the balance, you know, between yin and yang. And the, the more energetic and chaotic things are on the outside, the more you want to be still and calm inside yourself. So I think that's a first step, which is just learning not to be snapped around by your phone and your devices and the latest crisis, but to have that ability to calm yourself down. And then I think to turn to some underlying principles. And those underlying principles really get at this question of if you are going to be connected, if you're going to give up your freedom and your liberty and your data and all these other things for the benefits of it, 
are you being thoughtful about the way in which you're doing that? And what are the sort of, where do you want to fit on that scale? How much data do you want to give up? How connected do you want to be? And I think those are choices that often we don't realize we're making until it's, it's too late. So I think that's the second thing. From a leadership perspective, there is no question that the opportunities and risks are going to come from things you're connected to that you don't necessarily see. Uh, almost by definition, the biggest opportunities are going to be not things where you're going to follow somebody else into a business, again, because there's no second place, but it's going to be when you find something new and different. And the question is, how do you architect your organization to bring those edges that are really in contact, uh, not with your core business, but the intersection of other things where connectivity really takes place in fresh ways to the center of your attention? And that's what's so difficult for traditional firms. They spend a thousand percent of their time as they should, looking at the core of the business they're running today. It's the classic Clay Christensen innovators dilemma problem, but the future is gonna be decided on the edges of their business, not at the core. And that's, that's a very difficult problem for many CEOs. Well, and the amount that they've invested in the core makes it very hard for them to spend their time on the, the edge. The amount they've invested, their self-esteem uh, is totally wrapped up in making widgets or print magazines or being the kind of uh, you know, doctor my father was for a long time. But you know, the, the reality is that's just not going to be a tenable uh, structure. It's going to be you know, like showing up with football gear for a tennis match. And um, people need to understand that it's, you've got to be willing to make the shift to, to adapt to a new way of thinking about things. You know, I, I want to close with one, one thought, and it may be the absolute wrong thought to close on because it, I haven't really thought it through. Um, but, but, the, but, you know, isn't that the nature of what we're talking about? And, and I think that, you know, there's some sense that I get about uh, letting go. You know, on the one hand, we're very tightly controlling oftentimes as leaders the you know the impact because we've got deliverables and we've got outcomes we're trying to achieve and we've got yeah. shareholders we're responding to and 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 if if you if you don't have the freedom to escape that you you may actually be stuck in it and and it may not be you know the successful way to move but i also think for for those people who are not necessarily stuck there there might be an interesting message that says to the extent that this isn't controllable, that the best thing you can do is find those moments of stillness and to pursue the things that are most engaging to you and to what you, you know, in connection with your customers might be most engaging to your customers in a way that you don't have an expectation of being the next big network, but you have an expectation of connecting with people in real and honest and authentic ways in a way that meets their needs and that leverages your strengths. And, and kind of what you have to offer, and then really be okay with the outcome that says, we may or may not be huge with this, but we're not going after huge. And that that's not controllable to us in some sense. You know, it might be, there might be four, you know, the four big tech companies that, that have the market on that, but ultimately we're not going for huge. We're going for meeting people in connected ways and delivering value and, we don't actually, it's really letting go of an outcome, which is very spiritual and very, very hard to do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically focus on the connection. Get the connection right and everything else will take care of itself. Right. And if it doesn't, at least you'll be connected, which ultimately is what we're looking for. Yeah, that's right. And be right. So we don't, you don't, it's really a journey where we don't know where the destination is. And that's true for all of society. We, we don't know how this is going to end up. We're not going to have labor as we think about it today be the same in 50 years as it is today. So how do you navigate 
these kind of changes. You know, when I was writing the book, I went back and I spent a couple of years doing nothing but reading all the great classics of the Enlightenment. And when you go back and you read Locke and Burke and Kant, and what you discover is none of them knew what was coming. They, they just have the dimmest grasp of it. And if you said to Locke, one day all the farmers are going to vote, he would say that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But they are trying to begin to work their way through it. And, and that really is kind of the intellectual example that we ought to take. Understand that the rules are changing. Uh, Kant said that the, 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 you know, the motto of the Enlightenment should be dare to know, because then it was crazy to think that you could ask questions about what was going on in the world. And I think now, uh, you know, we've got to have the courage to understand and really question the, the underlying premises of a lot of what we believed in the past. We have been talking to Joshua Cooper Ramo, his new book, The Seventh Sense, Power, Fortune, and Survival in the Age of Networks. It has caught on. It is in its 11th hardcover printing. Uh, it's a really interesting book that gets you thinking. I hope that we have gotten you thinking a little bit in this conversation. Joshua, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. Thanks. You too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.